Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I'm, I'm really excited to introduce Ted Creighton, co-founder and artistic director of Joy of the People, which is a soccer club up in Minnesota, and they have an incredibly unique and interesting approach to what they do. Ted, welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Thanks. Thanks uh, for having me. Now, you're not a lacrosse guy, but what you do translates exactly to what I believe in, which is why I'm having you on here. And I'm really, really fired up to hear the backstory about you. Um, and, you know, soccer is your main love, but I know you grew up playing a ton of different sports. Please tell us a little bit about your journey to getting to where you are now. So uh, thanks for having me. I think this will be, um, I think I learned more from watching other sports and how they develop and train and, and go about their play as I do about soccer because um, sometimes, you know, when we look at our own sport, everything looks monochrome. So this will be very interesting, and I'm looking forward to the feedback uh, from your constituency. So um, I grew up just loving sports, playing all the time, play at the park. Uh, we were kind of landlocked, our little neighborhood. We never had curfews. All the dogs were off leashes. Um, it was just, you know, it wasn't it was lower middle class, and it was, you know, we had seven kids in our family, and that wasn't unusual. And everybody met at the park. Uh, and played and we played in the summer we played baseball and and tennis and uh, in the fall we played football and and basketball and in the winter we would play hockey and uh, I never played soccer I never played lacrosse although I think I would have loved it I didn't pick up soccer until I was 16 and I was kind of looking I was tired of football I was, I was a small 15 year old who wanted to play quarterback so I went out for soccer instead, and I fell in love with it. And um, I had to learn everything step by step. When we would, my only experience with soccer was soccer style place kickers in football. And I thought they hit it with their outside of their toe. So I was, you know, as we were warming up before high school practice as a sophomore, I never played before, I was using the outside of my toe, and sometimes I would connect and sometimes it wouldn't and sometimes it would hurt my ankle and then I saw this kid from Columbia who over and over could just drive the ball at the net I was like where are you hitting that on your foot and he pointed at his laces and I was like no you don't do that it's impossible and uh, basically I had to learn everything step by step by step by step just deliberately learn it I was 16 years old I was you know and then um it was in a place, soccer was in a place where perhaps lacrosse used to be in, and lacrosse is probably growing more mature now, but back in the day when, so I played high school, and then I, I went to USC and played there for one year, and then I transferred to Trinity College in Chicago, and I played there, and I, I played a uh, fairly high level. I was uh, made it to the 89, um, you know, back then we had uh, regional groups that, uh, tried out for the uh, World Cup team. So I was one of the 
final group of players there. I didn't make the team, but um, I was much older than the, than the rest, and they were kind of going into younger. And uh, so when I was about 40, I got into coaching. Much later, as youth soccer sort of matured and needed coaches, I jumped in, and I immediately saw that the way that uh, we were doing it, teaching these kids was opposite the way I grew up and sort of, we were sort of hand teaching these kids. And, um, you know, from the very first, um, I took a different outlook towards development. I, I remember meeting with a high school team that I was coaching, a uh, very, very affluent uh, private school girls team. And uh, I said, whatever you do to to develop the player hurts or whatever you do to win the game hurts the development of the player. And I just remember these parents were spending, you know, five, $6,000, you know, 20 years ago to develop their kids were so confused by that. Um, but I guess I just always took a different outlook towards development, kind of using my own background and trusting my own background. And I thought that, that I, I, we could see that sort of uh, practice wasn't working, not only within my club that I was running and now as a big coaching director, but also anywhere in Minnesota. You, I would look and hunt and for these great kids or great groups of kids, and you just didn't find them. Um, so we thought, well, play must be integral. You know, I played. And, and when you think about play, you think about it sort of like, it's like a missing ingredient, like you just need a vitamin C pill, like it's gonna prevent scurvy or something. Like it's a small piece to the puzzle. And the big piece of the puzzle is the coaching, the competition, the elite travel. And that's that's where I was coming from. I thought that. I thought, well, it's important. It's just a little missing ingredient. And we set about to create a space in uh, Minnesota with my club. And uh, we got a rec center that was really nice. and we had this big vision of playing a, having a pickup space and this club was very, very big and it just, we couldn't turn that ship around. And my kids were getting older and I was like, boy, I don't really know. You know, they weren't that into soccer. They weren't that into what was happening. And I thought some friends of mine who always, we always talked about it. We decided it was time to take them, make a move. And we, went to the city and we, hey, we're gonna form a different nonprofit. Can we get a different rec center? And they, at the time they were like hurting to keep these rec centers open. So we got this rec center with the idea of like creating a play space for kids uh, constantly. And when we did it, we started to see um, how play was developing versus how traditional coaching was developing. Now, I left the club and so, my kid left a group of nine-year-old boys who were probably the top nine-year-old boys team that I'd ever brought up in that club. And so side by side, I could watch these nine-year-old boys who would often come for free play into, along with the kids who were doing just strictly free play. And we started to see lots of differences. And then we, we doubled down on free play. We just said, let's see where this is going. So we, we were smart about it. We would talk about it all the time and we would uh, constrain the environment a little bit to get what we needed. But also the kids kind of show us what, what good free play was. So for instance, most free play that you do in soccer is on small sided goals. 
like you put little plug goals up and everybody does that. Well, you put one shoe here and another shoe there and yeah. So we had a kid who was, who was coaching with us at the time. He was an Ethiopian boy who grew up in Ethiopia and in the refugee camps of Kenya. And this kid's foot skills were better than world-class, better than world-class. Um, probably the, you know, just an amazing ball handler dribbler. He grew up where they're always playing small sided games, small sided to goals. He did some time with the U15 and U17 national team. And the big thing with him was ball striking was like, he has difficulty close to goal because he's, he's, he's not a good finisher, not a good ball striker, like shooting, you know, finishing, curling, um, last third comprehension. So when I would talk to Khaled, I would say, hey, you know, how'd you grow up? And they always played a uh, small sided, always, always. And when you play small sided, it does develop your dribbling and your passing, but it doesn't develop your finishing skills because the finishing problem is taken out of your hands. If a defender backs up into the goal, you really can't finish. Your chances of finishing are maybe 10%. So consequently, you wait for someone to run to the far post and you pass it to the far post and they finish it. So the problem is a sort of a group problem rather than an individual problem. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. But, but the kids prefer to play to a big goal, a futsal size goal, you know, three meter by nine meter goal. No. So, uh, so just to make it, just to um, clarify what you're saying is um, that when you play just small sided, you get that environment creates the great dribbler and passer, but because you're not really shooting the ball, you don't really get that environment to, to practice your shooting and which is probably leading on to, Hey, we play a lot of different games here to be able to develop different things. Correct. But even more so, um, when you take apart a game and that's what coaches need to be careful of when you take apart a game, you would say, well, we want to improve the dribbling. Let's play the small side of goals, but you're really not playing the same game anymore because there's no opportunity to make that final decision on a bigger goal. So futsal goal is three by four meters. So your goalie has, has a chance to allow a goal or save a goal. So a good example was when we started doing free play, first of all, when you watch free play, it, if you're seeing good things, it's a rarity. It generally is a lot of mess. It's a lot of like, and I can see why coaches lose their faith in it. Certainly parents who are paying transactionally for, they look and they go, what the heck? You know, the coach isn't even doing anything. So I came into the gym one day and um, at this point in time, I wasn't fully bought in on free play, but I saw the kids uh, playing barefoot, like six aside, seven aside probably in a, in a small gym. And I'm like, why are they barefoot? Then they're using this ball that was a, to play volleyball. It's uh, got a cloth coating on it and it's lighter. And if you spike it and someone comes up to block it, um, it won't hurt their face if they get hit in the face. So it's, it's meant to help train volleyball blockers, I think. Yeah. And so I'm like, why, why are you playing with this ball? Right. And they're playing a big goals. And, um, so as I watched the game, I didn't break it up. I, I sat and watched the game. 
this little kid who came around the, he was like 10 years old, but he's excellent little player. He cranked a shot at the goal, full speed, like a 40 mile an hour shot. And I look and it's like a five-year-old in goal and it hits him right in the face. And I go, oh my God, he's gonna die. He's like, but no, what happened was the kid was still smiling. And I go, I get it. They're using a ball that more equal so that everybody can have a chance. Then as I watched it, I saw that this kid was more, the second time this 10-year-old came, the lefty, he shot, a, he saw that, he saw the goalie again. And this time he sees a little five-year-old goalie. He goes, I'm going to shoot for the corner. So he shoots for the corner and the five-year-old gets up there and taps it away. And everybody's going crazy now. And so now I'm seeing, okay, he's an active goalie. He's creating a decision within the shooter. What what should I do? Because if I just blast it, he's going to save it. He's not afraid of the ball. If you're using a regular ball, and you or, you or I are in goal or anybody who's not yeah. super highly trained goalie, we're going to duck. We're going to yeah. – and therefore, every decision – the only decision to make is how hard can I kick it? And how familiar is that to anybody who's coached soccer in, this, in the United States? You know, someone turns the corner, gets open, they see a goal, and it's just like, how hard – can I shoot it at the goal? And usually they miss or they shoot it right at the goalie's belly. So the third time this kid comes, he sees the five-year-old out and everybody's like, well, what's going to happen this time? And he chipped the goalie. The five-year-old couldn't get there and the ball went in the net. So the, the decision to chip the goalie was, was this third failure. Well, he made two failures before that, right? So he's yeah. like, and I never saw him chip a goalie before. So he just like trying to figure it out so so the whole game goes together so in that game you had an active goalie a decision-making shooter you had a bigger goal you had a ball that equalized you had lots of players on the field for interaction so all these things are part of pre-play part of a so so we could see what best practices and what best practices not so so um you're saying that having a goalie is critical because you know, being able to make a decision on what shot to shoot is as important as anything else. Is the most important thing, right? If you're going to score a goal. Now, I watch lacrosse, right? You see all these fancy shots on goal behind the neck and through the legs and stuff. And those are cool. But the real thing you have to do is you have to move the goalie out of the way before to create an open spot. You So when you were talking about uh, – non-translatable skills when when we drill kids on cones and without defenders they're just manipulating the ball or the stick in the ball but when we add defenders now they have to manipulate the defender and that's where the real game comes in because when this kid was breaking away on the goalie he's thinking he thinks i'm going to shoot it to the corner so he's going to come out and cut the angle and therefore i'm going to chip it over and the goal is thinking He's going to try to chip to the corner. He's going to do X, Y, Z. So there, this is game theory back and forth between the two brains. And this is what kids love. This is what they love about play. Yeah. They don't love behind the back shots. They do, but they do love fooling a goalie with a behind the back shot. For sure. So it's really about relationship. That's what I've learned from free play. It's about relationships controlling those relationships and playing with those relationships, playing with your opponents, playing with your attackers. I'm a big believer in, and I would encourage all your coaches to look into Raymond Verheyen. 
uh, he's a Dutch um, physical fitness soccer coach. He started out that way, but he presents views on play, on, on training and periodization that would probably take lacrosse to another level. He trained the 2002 uh, Korean team and basically what he believes in is play. He, to train endurance fitness, he'll do 11 v 11. To train anaerobic conditioning, he'll train 3 v 3, et cetera, et cetera. So he periodizes that throughout his training. But, but basically it's like, it's all about unconscious learning in that uh, play, once he often says this, why doesn't uh, physical speed trainers create faster soccer players? Why doesn't that work? No one's proven it worked, and they've even done studies that shows it doesn't work. Because when you're training with a physical fitness trainer, like a speed trainer, go through the speed ladder, jump over the hoops, you know, sprint, you know, turn around, sprint, accelerate, you know, work in your form, you are consciously running. You're, you're doing what the coach says. You're thinking about, okay, now I'm gonna go through the speed ladder and then I'm gonna jump over this hoop and you're gonna, you're, your conscious brain is working. But when you're playing soccer, you are just, you are unconscious. You're jumping, sprinting, spinning, turning. You're never realizing you're doing those things. You're just doing them. And therefore you're imprinting your, in your brain with a laser printer right into your brain, into your unconscious, the skills you need to, to develop. So what I, what I say about play is that if you're, if you're thinking about it, you can't get good at it. So if you're, but you can good at, get good at it if you figure out a way to release all consciousness from it. So that's why play works. So a 5v5 lacrosse game with two goalies um, they're fairly close together and some net system where the ball is inside, it doesn't fly out. Um, I don't know how you keep track of the balls, but if you were playing that game, you're describing box lacrosse, which is the indoor version of the game in 5v5 in a hockey rink and it's smaller nets, bigger goalies, no long poles. And the interesting thing, Ted, is that the Canadians have somewhere between 50 and 100,000 players. The Americans have about a million. And yet at the world-class level, uh, in the last four World Cups, you know, it's two to two Canadians versus Americans. Yet they've got, they've got a tenth, less than a tenth of the number of players. And, and they probably spend uh, about 1% of the money uh, on the sport. And that's their sport, box lacrosse. And – it's not just free play, but I'll tell you, it is much, much, um, it's not coached um, with the same type of um, control. It's because there's a 30-second shot clock. You really don't have much time to do anything, and they just kind of play. And I'll tell you, the skill level that these Canadians and Native Americans come out with because box across is their sport is absolutely through the roof. So you just kind of described the game that everybody, everybody in our country kind of knows it works, but they, I don't know if they know exactly all the reasons why beyond environment. Yeah. So everybody knows more touches, less players, right? Um, if you have a clock, there's time constraints. Uh, but what you're not realizing is probably that inbox across because you have more important than touches are sort of player manipulation or player communication. You do your opponent, you do your teammate. It's, 
Verheyen is all about communication is the most important thing. His name is Verheyen Raymond, Verheyen, V-E-R-J-E-I-N. And um, if you look him up, Dutch soccer coach, Raymond Verheyen. Yeah. The, um, and he does classes around the world. Um, he, could, he does a lot in the United States. He could do a day class. I'd highly recommend it. Um, he gets, you know, is very translatable. Anyways, um, in the game itself, they're, they're starting to understand um, how to sort of put the game together. So in box lacrosse, it's a little simpler question of, I don't know, does your goalie start with the, do you build out from the goalie in lacrosse? In soccer, we build out from the goalie. So the goalie starts the ball, we build out. Yeah, it's different because there's so much more control in lacrosse. You know, in box lacrosse, you give it to one person that can pretty much run it down to the other end of the floor. And then right. you so, start. But you, what you have to do is you have to solve the problem of get it from your goalie, build up play, and then finish play. Yes. You have a 30-second timer. That's basically a story. That's basically a sentence or a paragraph or a, it's a basically a story that people in box across get more literate in uh, rather than someone who's playing, what is it, 10v10 lacrosse? 10v10 field lacrosse, you know, where there's 80 yards between the nets. Right. The buildup is only the defense. The midfielders do this role. So it's too, it's too specified too early. So you don't have the sort of um, – and you lose a lot of the joy because the kids enjoy that. That's the problem that they enjoy. They want to communicate. They don't want to be fancy with their sticks or have fast feet. They want to communicate. That's what you're, you mentioned your daughter. And that's what she's doing when she plays. She's a good player. She's not a good uh, – this is like rampant, right? Like my daughter can like – she can get a ball at midfield. She can turn, and someone's running 30, 40 yards away. She can put the ball over everybody's head, so that even so the defender doesn't even back up. The defender thinks, I'm going to reach this ball, and they jump, and they just barely miss it. lands on the foot of the attacker. It's like in our club, there's probably not a better um, boys and girls uh, passer in the final third. She's never once ever in her life and never would work on hitting 30 yard uh hits with the ball ever once yeah. and she if you asked her to do it she'd she'd laugh at you right so but there's others that work on it like crazy and then they get into the game and yes the ball falls short or goes too long there's something about practicing it and play which creates a different sort of skill than it is uh, it's almost like anything you practice it, isolation is a different skill than what you're doing live because it's not so much the ability to execute a particular skill as the ability to make the decision to execute it when there's a reason to do it why am I doing it how am I going to even get this done and you know all the all the other environmental factors that's absolutely true so that's what Play does is it puts communication first, decision making second, execution third, fitness fourth, in that order. And sometimes we 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 mess around with it, but that's the order it puts it in, in in its proper place. And so you'll get excellent communicators, but it's and decision makers, 
and execution doesn't really matter. If, if ball gets from me to you, who cares, you know, what the technique was, right? That's not the, the point. So, you know, as we study play, so it's been 10 years now watching kids, we see that, uh, so we focus a lot on like creating friendships, um, and I'm sure a lot, you know, good coaches already know this, like, uh, intrinsically that you, you got to create relationships, you got to, but nobody really knows why, right? Nobody, you couldn't have a bunch of jerks. You could have, you know, 15 jerks, right? And kill everybody in lacrosse. And, uh, but everybody knows that doesn't happen, right? It does, it does not work. But why? Why is that? And it's all about because communication and sort of relationships come before anything. And um, we have to play builds that in players. Yeah. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Um, so when I, uh, I've spent my career, much like you, um, studying the game and, and trying to figure out what the best players in the world do, why they would do it in this situation, and then how to teach it. And what I found was I could teach every variation of every skill. And it wasn't that hard to do. I just needed the time to do it. And we would do it, and the kids could, could do these just incredible skills, and, and they could do them on command. And, they, and, and, and you're like, wow, look, look at this. Look at this practice. Look at these drills. Look at these games. You know, I mean, look at, the, look at what we're doing. And it, it definitely worked in the sense that we developed a lot of players that got a lot better. However, I was always dumbfounded by the fact that they didn't even use – they might have used 10% of their skills that they actually possessed. Then it started making me frustrated. Like, why is it that we work on this stuff and you can do it and I watch you do it, but then when it comes down to doing it in a game, you don't do it. I mean, it's so simple as uh, – in, in lacrosse terms, is, is using a hesitation move or a rocker to throw your defender off balance. It's something that we know is important and we know that you all can, can do this. Or deception, and you talk about the, the relationships and the communication, you know, with your own teammates, but also with the defense, manipulating them. Um, and, and I just started to realize that the model that I was using, it worked in the sense that I could do it, I could get people to learn it, but it didn't work from a translation perspective, which is a good segue into this concept that you talk about fluency versus accuracy. So... As we were looking at play, we're, we had it, we were in a situation where we had to convince parents to stay with our club because we were doing it so differently and everybody was rampant on, you know, when they're going to do the training, when they're going to do these lead teams and travel and, and um, not all the kids, but, but, but many of the kids and parents were more they wanted to be convinced. So we had to go study free play. And um, we went to Brazil and we talked to like the world's best players 
over and over again. Zico. I mean, we just went to this conference that just happened to be in, in Rio and we got in cause we were a nonprofit and it was an amazing experience. And my buddy, the president, he speaks Portuguese and Spanish. So we spoke to everybody and it was always the same. It was always, so Victor would go up and ask, you know, what was your most important time in soccer? So we asked Sister Roberto Ayala, who's an Argentinian player, one of the greatest of all time. When you talk about studying the greats, we, we, we met with many of the greats. And um, he said, oh, when I was 12 and I went to River Plate Academy. Okay, well, uh, what were you doing? I said, Victor, what, ask him what he did, you know, when he was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. He goes, Oh, geez, uh, we just played every day outside my house, same place, right at the park, you know, this, my mom would call me in and then I would sneak out and we'd play until dark. And I, I said, Victor, ask him if he, if he thinks that had anything to do with his development. And he said, wow, I never thought of it that way. I just thought I was better than everybody else. <laughs> so, so we started to look, okay, what is going on here? Why wouldn't he recognize? recognize it why doesn't he figure out that that was important so we we were looking for a model we looked for a club or a, a sport um that was using free play in a really cool way and the you know like cricket india was winning the cricket world cup and all the kids in india were playing cricket in the railroad yards and streets but you really didn't get any sort of no but no super club was putting into the curriculum even though they know free play was work working I would guess even the greatest lacrosse club in the world is not developing its young players with, you know, hey, 70% should be free play and let's we'll a lot of time for it. Nobody's doing it. So we're like, okay, what's going on here? Um, so we stumbled on uh, a linguist theory um, and it was actually a, a, a teacher I'd had it in class at USC, University of Southern California. His name is Stephen Krashen. And he has, he's one of the leading experts of language learning theory. Nobody really knows how we learn a first language, but a second language, some people learn it well, some people struggle with it. Some people don't, like me, never speak a second language. What's going on? And he, he found that he was teaching language all wrong. He was trying to hand teach a, you know, conjugate this verb, say this word, and what he found was that in true language learning, when you learn it fluently, you go through two phases. You go through a phase called what he called acquisition, which is the in and around, the love, the joy of the language, sitting in the kitchen with the grandma, opera on the radio. It's not about your output. Look how good this kid can talk. It's about what's coming in. Oh, everybody loves the language. It's a cool language. I'm starting to, you know, play around with it in my brain and then they go through a second phase which is the rules laws skills and techniques which he called learning so there's acquisition and then there's learning so then he set five rules up to sort of govern those if you want to speak a language fluently and first was acquisition comes first learning comes second when we teach you sports we almost always teach rules laws skills and techniques and we spend no time on the love of the game Number two was, there's five sets, but basically what it says is that um, acquisition is the joy and the play, and the learning is sort of the work and the 
and the hard work and sort of feedback. And you don't need to get feedback and you don't want feedback when you're in this acquisition phase. And acquisition builds what he called fluency and learning builds accuracy. And so that Joy of the People has gone even further than that and saying that if you could draw a, a level line, like a, like a level of a lake, like a flat, still, still lake, everything below that line is, is, um, is, is fluency, is acquisition. Everything above that line is, is learning. So when you're, when you're generally coaching, you're overloading your kids. You're asking for more than they can give. You're typically telling them push out of the comfort zone. You know, you've got to give more effort. You know, American football, it's common to say, you know, work hard, focus. So we overload kids. We ask them to go into this sort of, you know, um, learning mode. And in this learning mode, you don't get better. You just see a mirror of where you are at the current time. You see, oh, I'm, you know, the, I don't know how to do this, but I can do this really well. But you have to go back to acquisition, this play area, to actually get better and what we call more fluent. And fluency is being able to um, ask questions, create problems, solve problems, uh, come up with solutions, mistakes, failures, retry it. Um, the communication, the relationships, all that stuff. The communication, I love the concept that you're communicating with everybody. And, and that's just such an amazing way of thinking about it, communicating, because if you're a great player, you know, if you're fluent, you, you, will, you will tell the defense something so you can manipulate yes. them while you're communicating Absolutely. with your own teammates so that Absolutely. you can play with them. So when we, so I'll take this even further. So when we watch kids at Joy of the People, so, and you can probably see this in lacrosse, all right? So we typically play three plus three, uh, two fields of three plus a goalie. And the kids that are overloaded are trying really hard. They're like, you know, I want to win. Uh, I'm playing against older kids. I'm, their brain's overloaded. Like, I want to win this game so I get to the championship field, right? They're putting pressure on themselves. And it's normal that kids overload and underload and overload and underload constantly. But when a kid's overloaded, he'll run full speed towards the corner, like around people, like, like a, sort of like a running back, right? Full speed ahead. And at the last second, he'll cross or shoot it as hard as he can. Okay? Uh, you might see this in lacrosse. You might recognize this in lacrosse. Sure. Although in lacrosse, there's a space behind the goal. But, the, but um, in soccer, the underloaded kids are like, you know, I really don't – I'm going to try something this time. I'm going to go right up the middle. And they'll do a couple spin moves. They'll just, they're going straight towards goal. They're having fun. They're enjoying themselves. They might make mistakes. Yeah, because they're going right up the middle. They're working on fancy moves and manipulating people. And, and they might make a mistake. Um, so one goes outside with the least chance of making a mistake. And this, the other one goes middle with a big chance of making a mistake. So we think the one going in the middle is underloading. What we call... You would normally do this when you're playing against, uh, you said that earlier before maybe it was off camera, how uh, the boys benefited from playing with the girls. Yes. So if boys are playing with the girls. In general, 
boys are a little bigger and stronger, and I don't want to get into stereotypes, but if the boy is more experienced, and he's playing with girls, he has an easier time communicating with her, manipulating her. I'm going to fake her outside. <clears throat> she moves the outside thinking he's going to pass. He runs toward the middle. So he might not have been able to do that against a bigger, stronger boy who would have never gone for that fake because he said, if I go for that fake, he might, you know. <clears throat> so they learn when in a play environment, like with Roberto Ayala, when he was playing in his, he thought he was better than everybody else. Okay, so he is underloaded constantly. He's the right. best player on the field. He is, um, he is communicating, he's controlling everything, communicating with defenders, opponents. He's speaking fluently on that field. And he is taking all the risks um, and he's developing. And he doesn't, no mirror, no mirror. He's not overloaded because then the mirror would have showed up and he would have seen, oh, I'm not very good or I'm really good. You know what I mean? He's like just a little bit of a mirror to say, oh, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah. So the acquisition period was so pure for him, like so, so pure. He never realized he, he never did it to get better. That's the big, big takeaway from Joy of the People I've learned is if you try to get better, it won't work. It's like trying to get better at a language at four years old. I'm going to get better at the language. I'm going to get better at the language. If you're just thinking about that, I have to speak. I have to, you, you have to enjoy it. The kid has to enjoy it. It's not about getting better at the language. Right. It's about the love of the language and about communicating how fun it is to communicate. So the question is because Ayala's great acquisition period was so like unknown to him. Is that the reason he became such a high level player? In other words, we spend a lot of time in the United States creating good environments for kids. Right. But it's all based around performance. Hey, you're a lot of times it's team based. Like you're all in this, we're going to do this free play so that we can go kick ass in a tournament next week. You know, we have to sort of ramp down the idea of competition yeah. in order to develop the highest level players. And it's like, it just is a very difficult thing for coaches to comprehend. Yeah. It's a paradox. It's a great, there's so many paradoxes actually within free play. And one of them is this underload overload. And the scenario we were talking about off camera was I decided I wanted to play pickup games with my daughter, who at the time was an eighth or ninth grader. And I was like, well, I'm going to bring in some high school boys. These kids are like, you know, committed division one players. I'm going to bring up the level of play. Um, but what I realized four or five months later was these kids came to me and they were like, coach, that was the best thing I've done for my game ever. And meanwhile, they're playing against girls. Now it did help the girls, but it definitely helped the boys. And there's your underload overload concept. It's the uh, biggest, the biggest secret out there is attached to the biggest myth out there. The biggest myth is you need to be with the best all the best players need to be together like a bunch of math nerds. Yeah. Right. Um, soccer is not about a very specific thing. It's very wide ranging in that. Uh, and we think about math nerds. We think about very specific people who are good at math, but socially they're, you know, they're clumsy, whatever you in soccer, everything has to be in sport everything has to be together that's why we love it it's about a human being and the biggest misnomer is that we have to play the elites with the elites 
and that we have to separate the, the less experienced players. So the one way to look at it is the further down you can go in your play. So if you can play with eight, six, five-year-olds, the higher your ceiling will be. It's like they, there's something in, in any sport, when you get to the final stage, let's say it's lacrosse World Cup or soccer World Cup, Within that team, soccer World Cup team, you're going to have really good players, and you're going to have you're going to have weaker players. And how do you you grew up playing only elite? You know, 13. We're playing. I'm playing all 13 year olds from my suburban area against traveling to Maryland to play all 13 year olds from Maryland, and then all 13 year olds from Phoenix, and not just 13 year olds. They're probably born January, February, March. So you're playing first quarter 13-year-olds. They all look the same. They all act the same. They bring pressure at the same speed. They all communicate the same. When you're playing little kids, girls, older kids, adults, in a very mixed setting, you're getting all kinds and varied communication that creates a more wide-ranging learning experience. And that gives you more answers when you get to the elite level. So you have to be able to, the biggest, like your boy said, the best thing was playing with girls. The, someone should come up with a training program. It's like, call it underloading, make a million dollars. All you have to do is play against kids who are not quite as good as you or experienced, and you'll get way, way better. But in this environment that we have today, so we used to have that in Minnesota. We used to have that. It was a, it was called the pond hockey rinks. And in Minnesota, we have every single park has a wooden um, hockey rink. And every winter, those hockey rinks are empty. Why? Because one by one, kids came by and plucked out the leaders, the best kids on each of the rinks. And I saw that happen at my own rink where these kids went to, to play hockey elsewhere. And Gradually, the leaders, which are the 13, 14, 15, the bigger kids, who would teach the other kids how to play and, and how to compete, and, and, and they were doing it very selfishly for their own well-being, for their own game. They were coaching kids up so that they themselves could enjoy themselves. And they were underloading, right? And then the little kids look up to them and say, when I'm older, that's what I'm going to do. But those kids all got plucked away to the refrigerated indoor rinks where the coaches then told them what to do. They matched them with other players where they can't underload because generally they push a kid up to the highest level possible until they fail. And then they drop them down one level where they're still playing pretty high level. So they, and then kids who are cut feel like failures. And so they're, we've kind of, but in soccer, at least all the best players come from areas where this was allowed not to happen because because they yeah there was either in a poor area where nobody was watching or like uh muhammad salah the egyptian was in egypt where nobody was looking nobody had their eyes but in brazil all the favelas are like they're like raided by scouts every day so they take those eight-year-olds out and you know zico and some of the leaders in brazil are worried that kids are not developing anymore the sandlot is dying in brazil you're saying Yes, it is. Yes. The Philacrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. 
There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. So, you know, um, when you think about the underloading and why it works, maybe important, partly because the communicate, it doesn't matter who you're communicating with. And the communication, you master the communication to manipulate or control a defensive player that's younger than you. It might be easier to manipulate them, like you referenced, with, with the boy versus the girl selling right and going left. But that's, that, that's exactly – it works the same way against the elite player. It's just that you might not try it or have the confidence. And, and, and I, I do believe there's something about this correlation between confidence – to communicate in communication, all that happens in free play and why underloading works so well is because it just allows you to make mistakes and not worry about it. There's a confidence element to it, but it also allows you to just, just communicate naturally um, and not have to, like you're saying, not have to think about it. You just start communicating and all of a sudden you gain confidence. Because what I've noticed is that there's so many kids that are unassertive and they're afraid to make mistakes. And then when they play pickup games, um, right. They, they, they just learn how to play, and all of a sudden, it's not a matter of taking a risk that they're right. afraid of. They're just playing the game and communicating within the scope of that game with their opponents and with their teammates because there are so many parents that are just like, man, my kid's pretty good, but when he gets into these showcases, he doesn't do anything. You know, and I'm saying, you know, they're not assertive. Um, and I, I, I really believe that this lack of assertiveness comes from, comes from just being so structured all the time that they just don't know how to communicate. And once they do, they'll have no problem being as assertive as they need to be. Yes, dive down deep. And I know you retweeted something that I did, said the other day. I think, so as we looked at this, these are our concepts. Underloading is a generally a physiological concept where, where it means you deteriorate. So I don't want anybody to get confused by that. So, I mean, if we had a better word, we'd use it. But basically, underloading is is going below your level to be able to and still enjoying yourself. The um, in soccer, you have basically an old English or Brazilian uh, saying: is a skill is something done in the least amount of time with the least amount of effort successfully. So, when you think about it, this makes Awfully good sense. Uh, I was at a um, conference with these Spanish coaches. It was a high-level La Liga uh, possession coaches education. And the coach said, you know, American players are stupid. You know, it's not the first time we've heard that. People say it all the time. But what is stupid, right? You know, he had a hard time putting a finger on it. He didn't really, you know, they just make – Everything is like observed and kind of considered, but nothing is really hard and fast. Well, one of the practices they had, they had a, um, they had, I think it was a, a possession practice. You might do possession practices in, in um, lacrosse, but it was four on the outside with two defenders, and then they added a, another attacker. So it's one attacker in the middle, two defenders in the middle, and four attackers on the outside. So it's basically five versus two. Five versus two, keep away with one person in the middle. Correct. And uh, the point they made was that the two defenders will always 
almost always sack the ball and that the the um that the middle the person in the middle should not run towards the ball but run away from it so that there's a split opportunity between the two it's you know not to get you don't really need to know the answer to this but the, but but it, the light bulb went off in my head and what and what it what it told me was oh, what these guys are saying is that when they say Americans are stupid in soccer they're saying they work too hard there's too much effort there's not as easy as possible so there's basically two two you can go fast as possible or easy as possible or both together and when we overload kids and we, we compete kids and we put pressure and feedback on kids, it's almost always working harder, faster. Um, Go hard. Yeah. And when we, and it's very difficult for a coach to understand and allow easy as possible. It's almost. It's it, counterintuitive. Big time. Correct. So when kids are in play, what you'll see is yeah, they're standing around a lot. They'll do things that, you know, hey, come back on defense. Oh, but then the ball pops out to him, and he's able to turn quick and go to goal. He was standing in a space where he wasn't playing defense, but he was almost like cherry picking. And But, but he anticipated that the ball would come there. Um, so it benefited him in his own way in free play. So... This easy as possible thing is what kids learn when, how can I do it easier? How can I use less energy? How can I do it simpler? And also this is very entertaining for people watching. So the, the, so not only do we communicate when we, when we sit around and we go to, to the bar and have a beer, we don't, we, we don't just Jamie, you and I wouldn't just communicate, Oh, that brick is red or that the bar is wood, you know, uh, the lights are uh, blue. No, we tell stories and we entertain each other, right? And right. We, we, I always, you know, when we studied free play, great free play spaces around the world, we would see bleachers. Bleachers outside these futsal courts that are fenced in. What are the bleachers there for? You know what I mean? Why, why does every soccer and sport is about communicating with those watching, not only on the field, but those watching, telling a story for making that's why people pay money. It's entertainment. And we have to, entertainment is not doing something fast and explosive or in Americans, I think we, we tend to overestimate the ability to work hard. Entertainment is work hard, never give yeah. up grit. You know what I mean? And then yeah. the person in a war experience, that person would die. That person, you know, so, so what we see is the kids enjoy the people they tend to be more like, well, you see those, you, you know, you see those kids that come to be World War One. they come to the front line and they don't worry, old man, you know, I'm here now, you know, I'm going to save the day. I'm going to rush over the top and, you know, take the Germans. Yeah. The old man would probably say, sure, go ahead. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? But the, uh, but the, we want to develop kids that say, Hey, how, you know, how'd you make it so long? How did you do it? You know, what are your, what can I learn from you? So it's really about learning from each other, mm -hmm. using that whole experience of lesser kids, higher kids, you know, and, and creating that kind of learning communication. It's amazing. Yeah. What, one of the um, things that popped into my head as you're talking about this is the, um, the probably the, the Native Americans invented lacrosse. Um, and uh, they call it the creator's game. 
and, and, and they play this game. Uh, it's like a blessing in their lives as well as a sport that they play. And, and um, there's, I've, I've, I've a few, a few friends, um, guys like Darius Kilgore or Red Burnham that, you know, I was talking to about, you know, how many, how many native American players are there? Because per capita, there are more world-class players coming out of these reservations than any population in the world. And, and, and I would argue, you should look into it, Ted, because I think they might have one of the, it, it, this might be true in any sport. Um, world-class player, first bout Hall of Fame player after first bout Hall of Fame player. And when you, when you describe the way the natives play, it's effortless. It's like they're not trying. It's like they're oblivious. They're getting pounded and they're just playing. Um, and they play, they all kind of play in a similar fashion that way with the, their level of skill and their vision and their creativity um, and the way they move without, they don't move that much and they're, but, but, but all of a sudden they're by you. And, and it's just, um, it's, it's funny because meanwhile, we get back to this whole paradox of, you know, free play. Part of it is this underloading. Part of it is, well, how could you possibly learn something without being taught it? Mm -hmm. how, you know, I've, I've had so many people say like, Jamie, I know I get it, like free play, but you know, we got to learn some things here. Like, you, yes. you know, I, how can you learn something without being taught? Yes. Um, and I want to transition into that because, because this is one of the great paradoxes and the mysteries. And like you said in a podcast I listened to recently, it makes no sense. The, there is no, I would argue that um, there is no repetition of any skill. So every skill looks different because it is different. There's no two situations in any sport that are the same. Everything requires different things. And you said the creator's game. The idea that you are bringing something new to every situation. We, the skill before before development argument is rampant in soccer as well. And um, everything that was invented in every skill that's come up, even soccer, we, we give the skills names of the famous players who made them famous, a Rivellino turn, a Maradona. Um, um, they're the ones who've, who made it popular, but they saw it somewhere else in a park and they copied it. Or, um, or it just happened, which mm -hmm. is something that is like, you know, an amazing thing that happens in sports. And I know it's happened to any listener. I'm sure it's happened with you where all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I can't believe I just did that. That was sick, mm -hmm. you know? Go ask a great player how he did something once and he'll say, did what? That's what will happen. So, so if he doesn't know what the skill is, how do, um, how in the world did anybody teach it to him, right? Um, he doesn't know. I mean, great player. Watch something really great. And they will say, did what? So the I used to think that you, I mean, I was big into technical development before. And I, I do think that in a natural world, kids are showing other kids how to do things or yeah. people ask. But I think we have to be very gentle and careful about that. And and in a good way, um, support that. If people want to learn, do it, but don't force it on them. Let them play, let the problems come to them. 
and then let them find solutions to the problems, there's a good chance they're going to find uh, an even better solution than we ever, ever, ever thought of. When I played soccer, we everybody shot with their instep. But that's those days are over now. Now they're all shooting with their side of their foot with their toe down to create more. Uh, the balls are a little bit lighter to create more dive with the ball, control with the ball. Um, create some topspin. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So – so ping pong, uh, back in the day when I, you know, when I played ping pong and I was a very good ping pong player, um, we had loops and we had, and then they came up with these disguised rubbers. So now you have to, everything, it's about creating adaptability. So if we, if we lock kids into too much into uh, a skill, uh, when things change, then that skill is, is useless. So we don't want to think about skills that way. Cristiano Ronaldo, probably the old way we would teach shooting was we would break down everything. We would take the model of the best shooter, like in this, let's say it's Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and we would do everything that he did. Oh, three steps back, accelerate to the ball, second step on the top of your foot, drop down, knee lock, lock your ankle, point your toe down, you know, and then we would teach that to kids, right? That's a classic. But the thing is, is that Cristiano Ronaldo has never shot the ball the same way twice. Ball's rolling, it's Nike ball, it's Adidas ball, it's windy, it's wet, it's turf. It's, so he's, what he's good at is adapting. So we tend to see achievement as the top of a mountaintop that we want to like try to climb to get to. Then we fall back, climb to get to, fall back. On top of the mountaintop is Cristiano Ronaldo. But that's not the case. The science will tell you that, that the mountaintop is sort of a, a pinpoint, like a a black hole and everything rotates around that black hole, but nobody can get to that black hole. Not even Cristiano Ronaldo can shoot a perfect ball. There's always other things they can do, but he can get very close to perfection and same with Messi. And then as we, as we move away from that black hole of perfection, we get, uh, you fill in with the, with the less experienced players. And the idea is that all those experiences matter. All those mistakes matter because they're kinesthetic learning. And that's what we want to. So by looking at it that way, you create environments where kids can create their own skills and they will develop their skills. I think the, that's the, now they'll go do things on my dog grabs a rope and he throws it up in the in my puppy, throws it up on the yard and then catches it. He thinks it's a squirrel, right? Or so he thinks he's imagining that he's got a squirrel and he's throwing it up. So there is isolated skills training that kids can do if you use your imagination. If you say, yeah, hey, I got, the, you know, I got the ball, I'm the, you know, I'm this, I'm going to do easy as possible, you know, uh, I'm going to, yeah. but that's different than a coach saying, are you going to catch the ball here? You're going to take two steps, a spin move, you know, because that's conscious. So it's like, so like if I told my dog, grab that, you know, rope, throw it up in the air, you know, dog's never going to do it. Dogs are playing, you know, and they play so well because they are imprinting things that they're going to learn need later on in life. Apparently, you know, he'll right. never need it because it's like his food will always be there, but he doesn't know that. So, you know, uh, in lacrosse, there's, there's a belief that you need to be very two handed. Uh, and yet the box lacrosse players that are exceedingly one handed, meaning they, 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 they're either righties or lefties. And you play on your side, okay? Because a lefty has more angle, 
looking at the net on the right, coming to the middle left-handed, whereas the righty has more angle on the left side. And they literally just play on their side. In field lacrosse, it's this big, you must be two-handed. Um, and they just, what happens when you learn how to play with one hand is you just become such a, you, you begin to communicate with your defender so well and with your teammates that you learn this IQ of, I can go left or right and still get my right. Okay. I, it doesn't mean I can't go left because I'm a righty. It just means that I'm not going to probably shoot it or pass it lefty, but I'm going to get my right. No matter what you do, I'm going to get my right. And there's a level of IQ that occurs naturally. And one of the reasons why these Canadian box cross players and the natives are, are, are so skilled and why the pickup game um, is really kind of a version of box lacrosse, which is very interesting. Uh, the pickup game that we play tends to be a smaller net with a tennis ball and no equipment, and it really simulates box. But I wanted to take this conversation now to an article that you wrote recently regarding academies and the best academies in the world and what you learned about the players that they're theoretically developing. Yeah, so this is a, still a big argument and this, this article has gained a lot of attention but because it was, I think, I think the power, power of the argument is it was personal, it, it was. So this guy who runs the Croatian Federation now, um, Roman Josak, he, he, um, he, his practices are just gorgeous. I mean, they're like isolated passing and skills. Just, they're just gorgeous. They're like Corver, like Corver videos. Like even, even maz more amazing than that. Okay. He's a big believer in that. And so he has these practices that they, so I met him at a conference and we had some mutual friends and I, and he mentioned that they do some stuff in the United States. And at the time I was like, deliberate practice, free play. Um, you know, we didn't know how it mixed. Can you mix them at the same time? Like learning and so one of the interesting things about acquisition and learning is when you're in acquisition and play, um, and then you get moved into learning, like a coach, heavy coach to competitive environment, it's very difficult to go back again. That they're two separate, they're two separate, and we have to like figure that part out. In other Mindset. words, you have to practice, you have to protect kids from learning. In other words, because once they, the learning comes in, they get addicted to it. They're going to tournaments. They're treated like elite kids. They're um, it's very hard for them to enjoy free play anymore. But anyway, so with this, so we brought these three coaches over to run these practices and uh, uh, at night they did coach education. So the practices during the day were very hardcore, screaming at the kids, screaming at the girls. Uh, it's not perfect, do it better, it's not perfect. You guys are you know, trash compared to the Croatian kids. And there was like 150 kids there and they're all like coming back to lunch, like just you know, down in the dumps. And, and then in the afternoons, we would put up our inflatables so typically our camps go nine to 12 and then 12 to three is free play. So everybody in the neighborhood could come and do free play. And the, and the Croatian coaches stayed and watched the, uh, they go, wow, I love these inflatables. They're great. You know, I wish we had some and they would stay. And then pretty soon they would get into a game and make a team and they would play and they'd try to hold court. You know what I mean? And it, 
and they were getting into it. And then at night we'd have coach education. They came and they, and uh, they did coach education. And what was interesting, I probably didn't tell this story, but um, after coach education, we have a nice basketball um, gym. They wanted to play basketball. They want to take on the Americans in basketball. So my coaches and them played basketball, three Croatians versus three Americans. So, but every night they showed us these videos. They started with their sixes and then eights. Everything was two-footed, perfectly two-footed in beautiful drills, pass, turn, everything, you know, warm-ups and uniforms just looks gorgeous. And they're selling these DVDs. And, you know, and if, if I had a, if I was 15 years before that, I would have set up my practices just like that. I would have copied it. It was just gorgeous. And you, no way, these kids are just domi not dominating their whole environment by the way they can turn and shoot with their left foot, right foot, fancy turns, flicks, even small communications where they're passing, receiving, moving. Um, so we're watching this, and then they, uh, they write down on the whiteboard, these are the players that we've, we've uh, developed, and here's how much they're worth. And he writes down a name of a player who I think now plays for Chelsea, Kovacic. And my buddy leans over to me and says, hey, uh, that guy's an interesting player. And so my buddy who is really smart. So when he says stuff, I listen. So I went to that night and went on YouTube and looked at Kovacic and, and uh, watched this guy, uh, the highlight tape. And I'm watching this highlight tape, and he at one point he runs into a den of defenders, and then he comes out again, just like, like he's on hockey skates. Like, how in the world did he do that so fast? So I zoomed in on it, and basically what he was doing is using the outside of his foot, turning really quick, coming out. And I go, wait, wait, wait a second, because that's a street move. That's not a coach move, because any coach would have told him to, hey, use your left foot there. You know, what are you doing? Don't use your right foot. You know, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Um, and then I go, wait a second. He seems a little bit right foot heavy. So I counted touches. The touches in the full video were like 123 to 6, from right foot to left foot. And the next day when I talked to them, I asked them about Kovacic. And they go, oh, he's a special player. He's a street kid. He came to us when he was 15. Um, and I go, well, wait a second. So he came at 15. And uh, what about all those kids that you coached at six, seven, eight, nine, ten? They go, oh, well, you know, we, you know, he's a special kid. You know, so get players are born, not made. Right. And I'm going, wait a second. So I start to look into their highest transfers that they've ever sold, and they're all like 15 and older. Only one player came to them before the age of 12. So what they're doing in 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 Zagreb, Croatia, is they're creating super teams at six using this training method of turning left and right foot. Then they go around the country and they dominate the environment. New kids come in at eight. That team goes and dominates the environment. New kids come in at 10, 11, 12, you know, but the best kids come in at 15, 16 because they're out in other environments, underloading, playing, doing things at a lower level that they're able to develop skills that are needed at the highest level. And they convinced me that, you know, no matter what, the more we try, and I was always suspect of these high-level academies, the more we try to develop kids at this level, especially young kids, 6 to 14, the less we really 
allow them to grow in a really great environment. And that great environment is a street, underloading, playing at a lower level, playing in your community, playing close to home, those kind of things. I also think that the brain is not equipped for left and right equally, that the greatest players are one footed. Otherwise, wouldn't tennis players have two forehands? Right. This is, you know, uh, in, in hockey, we used to dominate. Uh, we used to dominate with uh, backhands and forehands. Then the Russians came in, and they had these short little sticks that were curved, and everything was a forehand. They could twist their arms around, and everything's a forehand. And they they changed the way we looked at how to handle pucks and shoot and things like that. The uh, so when people say and. You're absolutely right because my son is left-footed, and people can go onto our website and look at the you know the futsal final, where other teams send their best defender at him, and he you know he's not fast, he's not big, uh, but you know he sees a giant defender coming at him, he makes a quick shoulder move, and the guy freezes for a second. That allows him to turn. Then he puts on his left foot, and then everybody shouts left foot, left foot, left foot. Everybody's yelling that right. Yeah. But then he's got it on his left foot, of course. He moves the guy a little bit right, a little bit left, a little bit right. And then the guy, like, loses. He's not going anywhere. And then he just goes by him nice and easy. And he does it over and over and over. He's able to sort of take those strong physical defensive skills that these other people have and neutralize them. They're bigger, stronger, faster. They're, they're better at, they're better at um, running, you know, pushing, shoving, uh, slide tackling, but he's got the ball, so he's communicating with them. Now, what they can do with the ball, that's up to them. It doesn't mean that big, strong, fast is bad. It just means that you need to, the most important thing, the highest level is that communication. Communication. Yeah, and I think like, you know, uh, it's not, I don't think you're saying that you should never you know, kick against the wall or juggle in the backyard or go shoot by yourself because, you know, there's, you know, I will, in, in the sport of lacrosse, wall ball, people are like, all you need to do is wall ball. Um, or the kids spend time shooting and they shoot ad nauseum. They shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and there's nobody in the goal and they're by themselves and they're into it. And it's like, you don't want to take away the joy uh, of being able to just go practice on your own because you love it. It's just that to me, it's a compliment. And you can become more, you know, you can gain accuracy there, but really it's the fluency that, that, that we're after. Um, and that leads me into a, a question for you that I've been really wanting to ask. Uh, you, you know, like I told you, I'm, I'm like, I, 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 uh, I completely believe in this model, but I'm also a coach that studies the game. And how do you find a balance between coaching and free play and i mean literally in your program mm -hmm. because you know maybe in a perfect world you wouldn't have any competition whatsoever until you're 15 or 16 mm -hmm. but, but 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 that's probably not realistic and i know it's not realistic you know in, in the sport of lacrosse so how you know I, I looked on your website the hours you say the traditional model has you know 100 for the traditional soccer model it's 150 hours of competition it's 200 hours of training and it's maybe zero to 100 hours um of per year um of free play whereas your guys model would be 100 hours of competition 300 hours uh, of training and 600 hours of free play mm -hmm. uh, 
So specifically, how do you achieve that? Because that's a, that's a lot of hours right there, for one thing. We uh, don't, yeah. I don't think we really get to those hours. I was just, that was a... Kind of an idealistic thing. Yeah, yeah. That's a sort of ideal. If you, but those are ratios. That back, yeah, that ratios. was back, I was really into the 10,000 hour thing, right? Yeah. And that's all about deliberate practice. But then when I was looking at it, I was like, wait a second. Um, these guys in Brazil are not deliberately practicing. They're playing. So those, how do we fit those play hours in? That's kind yeah. of what I think about it. Yeah. But your question was, how do we mix in? So Coaching. we quickly realize, right. So we have to protect free play. We have to protect that learning environment. Uh, kids in today's world uh, want to play on teams. Their parents want to play on teams. It's not perfect. It's not perfect because when you play on teams, you get shown the mirror and the parents get shown the mirror. My kid is X, Y, Z good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what they want to see. They want to see how good is my kid right now? Give me a test to see what level my math yeah. kid is at. So, and we don't control those leagues or teams or tournaments. So now we're, we're getting in situations where we we're not always in control uh, and we have to sort of adapt. So we we wanted to be a free play space for everybody, but then we saw free play was being misused by kids and coaches and parents in that they were using it as a sort of a skill development. Let's do it as a vitamin twice a week, enjoy the people. And then let's go to my elite club so I can make my elite team. They were making their elite team. And as soon as they made their elite team, the elite coach would say, you don't have time to screw around and enjoy the people anymore. You have to do all this other training. So we're losing, we are doing such a good job that we're losing our kids. So we, so we made teams so that kids want, that wanted to play together could stay together. So we play at very low levels. We we um, we have futsal teams, we have outdoor teams, and we have sort of parks and rec teams. But as we get older, so yeah, we are coaching. And how do you organize kids? How do you uh, how do you build out of the back? I tell this story a lot. I went to the first tournament. We took these kids. You know, our oldest kids were 12 years old. We went to a tournament. We played in a tournament and they did not pass the ball one time the entire tournament. They just dribbled, dribbled, dribbled. And the parents were like, oh my God, you know, we had to have a meeting to, to convince the parents that, yeah, eventually in theory, they will learn how to pass. Um, how, you know, and then in modern coaching and soccer, it's all about, well, coaches have to teach players how to move, how to position themselves. You know, how to, this is only high level coach things. Kids can't learn that. And, you know, I don't buy that. So what we do is generally our young kids get their clocks clean. They get their, they just get smothered by teams that are more structured. We can't help that. It's benefit, it benefits kids to structure them. And they beat our kids, but we want our kids to sort of figure it out. So it's a, it's a, so our eights, nines, tens, elevens, twelves all get beat. Thirteens and fourteens, they start to catch up. Fifteens, uh, they're at the same level or higher. And sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, they're the best in the states. Um, and it's because of that, leaving the coaching aside until they sort of ask for it. And when they get to sixteen, seventeen, then we start to they ask for it. We look for peak height velocity. We look like the boy growing into the man before we sort of let them do that. Some 15-year-olds some want to still play with little kids. We let them stay. Some 
14 year olds want to go play with the big kids. We make sure they're ready and we let them. So it's, it's a very, and then we don't coach them up too much. We, we say, Hey, here's how you play defense. Here's how you build out of the back. And we use really smart coaching techniques. Um, but, but they have the skills and the communication ability to make everything work. So it's, it's not a lot of work on our coaches part. So we don't have to like teach them how to receive the ball with their. Right. You're not working on like how to receive or how, cause they kind of know how to do that stuff. I found that um, with, I've been playing a lot of pickup games with the kids, you know, in the neighborhood and early on we just kind of played and over the course of a few years, I was able to say, Hey, think about these things. And they were able to do them pretty easily in whatever level of competition it was. And one of my questions for you is, and I know you guys are, you know, really, uh, you know, hardcore is kind of the wrong word, but maybe committed to, hey, free play. You can't try to get better in free play or it won't work. But, but we know you are going to get better in free play. How, I mean, that, that's just a little bit, you know, uh, of a. Yeah, so, the, um, the, so what you're looking for is underloading. You're looking for yeah. a kid that goes up the middle. You know that kid is not worried about getting better. Yeah. Kid that's overloading themselves is worried about getting better. So you sort of, we sort okay. of watch the environment. Yeah. And, we, um, and sometimes the environment is infected by um, kids from other clubs who come in. And so I don't know, you, you do pick up a lot in lacrosse, right? And all of a sudden you bring a, you have girls and younger kids and you bring in a couple of elite older players in there, right? Who've only played on me, elite lacrosse. It's not that easy for them to play. No, it's not. They, they're probably, you know, they score very much and they like try that, really hard. It's like that. Yeah. They try really, really hard. They, they're easy as possible comes hard to them. So the, uh, I think when kids are underloaded, when they're smiling, they're not thinking about it, they're enjoying it. And what you see is it's a skill. Kids get better at it. Yep. They're able to fight off this idea of worrying about getting better. And Even though able- we know, you know, if I tell parents the best thing you can do to help your son or daughter achieve their dreams is to play pickup games. We already know that, so um, but but you're not saying that you that that you know it's it's you know it's a fact. So so therefore, it's there's no better model of getting better. But the point is, is once you get into it, just play. Yeah, yeah. So so if you really ask the reason the kid, your daughter, is going to the pickup game or the lacrosse game, it's not because she wants to be the best in the world. You know, that's oftener. What's she's just enjoying the play. We have to, we have to refocus on the things that they're getting out of it. Yeah. The communication between the two people, the opponents, the teammates. So going back to language learning, Chomsky says that we have a little machine in our brain that helps us learn the first language. And then you have a second machine that second language and a third machine, the fourth language. And there's a machine in there about play and that, and, so play is, I'm convinced now, play is like a language. Acquisition, learning, everything yeah. everything that we have in our brain is structured as a language would be. Yes. Because of our, how our brains are structured. So instead of thinking about being the best, right, the best language speaker in the world, right, we just think about enjoy it. 
go enjoy it. We don't go to the bar and have a beer to say, I want to be the best at talking with my friend until, you know, we, we do it because we enjoy it. And then after a while, you become good at telling stories. You become right. good at relating to people. You become good at sort of communicating. That's transferable to life, sport, play, everything. Sure. So intentionality is something that I, I have a question on because you talk about like, you know, you don't love the word intentionality, I, I feel. But I, but I think that like me as an athlete, um, if I'm playing a sport against you and I know that you're going to like, I'm going to sort of be like realizing how you're trying to guard me and I'm going to be able to like then have an answer for that. And while I might do this naturally without thinking, I also am thinking. And how do you sort of navigate the concept of, because I, I feel like there's no reason why you wouldn't be intentional about trying to get better at something or using a particular move that you know would work against this particular person because you thought about it. Well, yeah, you will see, you'll see unstable environments. You'll see uh, kids struggling. It's not linear. The um, kids underloading, overloading, kids failing, kids uh, failing a lot, kids not handling, winning, losing. Um, you'll see kids being more intentional, like I'm going to try this move, I'm going to get around, I'm going to score by this guy. Uh, it's us coaches who think the simple answer is to tell the kids, think about it, be intentional, move right then left, right? That's not the really... That's the problem that we saw from our own perspective that was last year's problem, basically. Then the current problem is he doesn't know what's going to happen because he's, he'll be experiencing it. The player will be experiencing it for himself for the very first time, every time. So when we tell kids to focus, work hard, persist, and things, we're putting learning into the acquisition space. And that affects the ability for them to acquire so we, we have to be careful, and it's not well, well understood, about how we focus intentionally. No, intentional about um, keeping that relationship good with that person you're really competing against. Um, intentional about not giving up, I guess. Um, but play is not, there's no give up in play. So it's the adults kind of watching the experience that gets in the way. So we don't have our coaches anymore watch over free play. Instead, we, they participate in a very selfish way. Like they're trying to win the game. They're trying to <laughs> do their things. And that way they sort of model the behavior better rather than becoming yeah. sort of a, a person who wants to see some sort of thing out of it. I've noticed that for myself, um, that, that when I just insert myself into the game, I don't think about coaching at all. I just play. And I try to play well and – you know, try to win or whatever. Um, and I think, um, I know, I think that is, it's a really hard thing for coaches. Um, but the reason why I sort of think about this is because I think that when it's coming from within, I think intentionality becomes normal, natural. It's just part of how you play. I mean, the way I play is I just go play. I mean, I, I last Thursday night and you'll love this, Ted, and Thursday nights in Denver in Wash Park, there is a Thursday night three by night. It's been going on for 20 years where people come and play this little three-on-three -three game with a little three-by-three -three net on the tennis courts at, from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, lacrosse? Lacrosse, yep. And it's, uh, it's awesome. I mean, honestly, if people did this all, it's a solution, you know, 
that people just don't get of, of, of pure joy uh, and also like getting better. Um, but, but like when, when I'm playing anything, I just, I'm playing, but, but I'm thinking because that's just part of playing. Um, you know, I know, you know, so I, but I think your point is when it's, when it's explicit versus implicit, yes. that's the difference, right? So if you're just doing it then you're doing it. Yes. Um, and, and I think you say there's a little bit of a difference between passing it on from one player to another than it is from a coach to a player. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I call that the pass it on model. And I believe that's what happens in, in, on the native reservations is that the, the older kids teach the younger kids things and then they go do them. There's no question that the best players can articulate in many ways what they're doing, but on the other hand, they're not necessarily thinking about it, but they are. And I think that's kind of like language. Like I'm not thinking about what words I'm using right now. Um, but I am aware of them and I can articulate why I did what I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. My, my son can walk, I'm watching a soccer game and I say, did you see that? And, you know, come see that. He goes, I already saw it. I'm like, what? You know, it's on TV, right? I go, you just walk past it. You, he goes, and then he explains everything that happened within right. those like, Oh, you know what I mean? Because he's taking it in differently than I'm taking it in because he grew up in play or whatever. I don't know. I think it's a little bit different, but it definitely creates, um, different brain patterns that, and, you know, now that he's older, he wants to play more. So he kind of realizes where and how to learn in a good way. And uh, I like to see that too, where they're not sitting around for a coach to tell them what to do or how to get better. They're like, you know, when you were talking about uh, playing on your own, probably nobody has played practice against the wall more than me and, you know and i think i enjoyed it it was a good workout sure. uh, but 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 if i could have had three or four other people with me that would have been a better practice no question. we have we have to think about what's always the best practice and people parents in the united states are willing to pay 75 dollars an hour to have a one-on-one -on -one personal trainer or speed trainer right but they won't take time to get four kids together and we'll play, uh, which would be the better learning experience. It's amazing to me. And you're, you're right. Uh, and people can't wrap their head around that. Like, you know, how can you get better in this environment that looks so crappy for lack of a better word? Um, yeah. But, but it does. And I'll tell you this too. You talk about the joy of it and like, yeah, they, people know that they're getting better, but in the end your kids come back because it's so much fun. I have created, you know, a, by me just kind of getting it going, I've created kids that love to play. Now my daughter, and this is girls, mind you, that people say girls are different than boys. Like girls, um, you know, don't do this stuff. These girls are playing pickup when I'm not around. They're making, they are, you know, I, I travel a fair amount. And in the, in, the, in the last few weeks of the summer, I was, I was like, a, you know, checked in with my daughter on a Wednesday. And she was like, oh, yeah, we played on Sunday. You know, a bunch of girls called me and we played. Um, and, um, the biggest thing that everybody says is we can't get it going. Uh, we, you know, we can't, nobody wants to do it. And it's because people don't even know how much fun it is until they do it. And then once you get it going and realize how fun it is, um, it, it will take on a life of its own the same way it happens in Wash Park on Thursday nights in Denver, the same way it's happening in front of my house with a bunch of girls and boys that come and play.
Um, but Ted, uh, this has been absolutely an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts. Um, I really look at this as a movement that I believe in. And I am as, you know, like I said, I am, I am into the cutting edge of the game. But I think this is where it's at, to be honest with you. And I think if you, like you say, invest in this and put money in this savings account of your free play, you can take coaching and apply coaching and be able to unconsciously do stuff the same way that you, you, you somehow use a big word that you never realized that you could use and it'll just happen for you. Yeah, so coaching is becomes more valuable, not less valuable. Yes. And the um, it becomes more high-level things that are really more interesting that coaches are really, really, really interested in. They're not interested in passing or receiving. Um, the, a good way to look at it is acquisition or free play is putting money into a bank account and learning is withdrawing. And so when we withdraw and withdraw without any money in the bank account, we can dry kids up. And so uh, lacrosse is in a good space because there's not as many coaches that are super high level that are like over coach. You know what I mean? There's still play going on and learning going on within the sport itself. And so, um, but this has been a really, you know, uh, great pleasure talking to you. And it's like, it's really enjoyable to talk to somebody who presents really, you know, challenges the ideas that we have. And, and, I, and that's one thing I said, it's like, please challenge, if you have ideas, challenge it, challenge me, because we want to just prove this if it's not true. And um, we want to make sure. The other thing is, is we're starting this cool thing called Free Play Go. And it's, it's about soccer and it's about pickup and it's about kids running their own little micro clubs of pickup uh, soccer games at schools, backyards around the country to give it some ownership, to give it some connection. Uh, but we also want to do other sports too. So we could extend this to uh, free play goal lacrosse. That would be, you'd be, you'd be a good starting point. Absolutely. Ted, let's keep in touch for sure. Thanks again for um, all your time and your passion. And um, enjoy the rest of the weekend. All right. Thanks, Jamie. All right. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.